welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. We are now well into our fifth year, 250 episodes aired with another 50 in the can. Looking forward to in the near future starting to release multiple episodes a week because our, our, our viewership, our listenership, and our guest interest has grown so exponential. Thanks to all of you that have stuck with us for five years. You may also know that after 25 years in the Franklin Covey Company, I started writing books about this very podcast. There were so many interesting insights shared from some of the world's greatest thought leaders, business titans, best-selling authors, generals. Today's guest included that with HarperCollins, I released Master Mentors Volume 1 and Master Mentors Volume 2, now available both in print and digital audio and video books through Lit Video Books, where each year I release a new volume with the permission of 30 guests that I feature in the book, where I highlight a specific singular transformational insight and bring it alive in the book as an ode to the guest on the show in the hopes to turn our spotlight onto 30 new people each year. Two down, eight to go. The third volume releases in the fall of 2023. Hope you'll pick up a copy of Master Mentors. Who knows, maybe today's guest might even agree to be in volume four. You know, I'm a bit fanboying over today's guest. We have interviewed some of the biggest celebrities and people around in the world. And about three months ago, one of our guests mentioned her book. I had not heard of it, went out and bought it immediately and almost directed, mandated that the team here book her. Her team was a little bit hard to get a hold of because there's a time change. I'm in Utah. She's in Australia. But after some cajoling and her listening to the podcast and realizing we're somewhat legit, she agreed to come on today. Her name is Bronnie Ware. She's Australian by birth. Her book is The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, A Life Transformed by the Dearly Departing. Bronnie Ware, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you. An absolute pleasure. It's, a, it's an honor to have you here. This book that you've wrote is uh, not only an international best-selling book, it is a gift. It is a masterpiece. It's breathtaking, no pun intended, because uh, I've learned so much about you from reading this book. I've, I've bought countless copies of this book. I take it with me everywhere I keynote now. I've authored a series of books myself, and whenever I keynote, including just this morning in Wisconsin, I bring the book and I open now every keynote reading a couple of passages from your book. I always give one out to the audience, so you're welcome to send that royalty check my way. Uh, I think your <laughs> book has touched me at a very unique time in my life. Okay. At the time of this uh, taping, my father in his 80s passed away about six months ago. My wife's father in her 80s passed away about four months ago. It's really the only death that my wife and I have experienced closely in our lives, fortunately yet. Both of our fathers passed fairly peacefully, um, have yet to have a funeral. They were both cremated because of the pandemic and just issues. We've yet to kind of put closure on that. Oh. In the last five weeks, I have lost three male friends between the ages of 47 and 51, all to a heart issue. Boom, oh, just dropped, heart attack twice, oh. one was a stroke. Three male friends in their early 50s, late 40s. I have two other people in my life, oddly all men. One has stage four colon cancer, another has stage three or four pancreatic cancer. I have another friend that has a 
life-threatening brain tumor. I don't know why right now your book has spoken to me at the right time. You know, things happen for a reason. And so I've been reading your book the last couple of days, absorbing it. I've posted on social media every couple of days how valuable the book is. I want to stop there. I'd like for you to then maybe tell your story of how you came to write the book. In the U.S., we know what you specialize in as hospice. We often refer to it as a hospice nurse. You're not a nurse by education. You're maybe a nurse by bedside manner. But would you maybe reorient your journey? Because you had a corporate career. You've lived all around the world. You've done all kinds of jobs. Your passion became helping people live a life without regret. We'll talk about that, and we'll talk about the five regrets of the dying. Take a few minutes and introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers worldwide. Thank you, Scott. Uh, I didn't expect to write the book. I didn't even expect to go into palliative care. I just knew that I couldn't keep going in banking. I'd been a bank manager and went up the corporate ladder quite fast as a young person. And uh, But I was also trying to get going as a singer-songwriter. And through that process, I ended up leaving palliative care after eight years of being with dying people. And I set up a songwriting program in a women's jail and uh, a, a music magazine, a local folk magazine, asked me to write an article about it. So I did, and um, about my experience of teaching in the jail. And when I wrote that article, I thought, why aren't I writing more? I, I love writing. I always had uh, pen friends overseas as a kid and I kept a journal, that sort of thing. And all through my years with the dying people, I had kept a journal because they were often asleep or we'd have huge conversations. And I was going through my own transformation. So I had a lot of time to write and never imagining that that material would one day become a book. So when I decided to start a blog, this is in uh, 2009, I, I didn't know what to write. I even Googled good blog topics and, uh, and couldn't come up with any that felt authentic. And then I just got really clear guidance, write what you know. And I thought, okay, well, I've been looking after dying people for eight years and their regrets have completely changed my life. So I'll, re- I'll write about their regrets. And so I wrote an article about that and then I kept writing other articles. And then I think it was about six months after that article went out, it became, it went viral. And uh, and so from that, I was offered a, a deal with an agent to write a book. And I think everyone has a book in them. And so I said to her, I can only write about it if I write it as a memoir because people aren't going to relate to it just with dying people. They need to see the challenges there are to actually live a life free of regret and be relatable to to the changes that they can make. And so she tried to get it published. And after 25 rejections, I was released from that contract. And then I released it myself. And that was in October 2011. And then in uh, February 2012, in the same 24 hours as I was about to become a mum for the first time at 45, I was very very blessed to conceive naturally, intentionally, quickly. And uh, and I was in hospital and my book took off and just got mentioned in some huge publications. And so I ended up leaving the hospital with a beautiful baby girl and an international publishing contract. And my book has now gone on to be read by over a million people in 32 languages and 
as even a movie in the pipeline. So it's been a pretty interesting journey and, uh, and I'm very grateful for it. And immensely deserved. We'll come back to the movie uh, discussion in a moment. Uh, Bronnie, we're going to spend some time today talking about what, in fact, are the top five regrets of the dying. Throughout the book, you write a lot about your own journey, your own uh, focus on kind of purpose and legacy and mission, about mindfulness. You're a passionate yoga practitioner. You're very in touch with um, the meaning of the earth and your responsibility to the earth. And throughout the book, you share a lot of stories, very intimate stories about the people that you helped to usher in to the end of their life. Uh, I want to talk about two of them before we get into the five regrets. One of them, and I feel like I know these people because you, you so um, <coughs> respectfully and graciously talked about their fears, their traumas, their disappointments, yes. their delights, their successes. Let's talk about Stella. Uh, Bronnie, my, mother, my father passed, I mentioned, about seven months ago. And although I was not in the hospital room when he passed, I, I live in Utah and he lives in Florida. And my brother was fortunate enough to call me and say, he's done. He wants you to fly in. I had some notice. I boarded a plane, flew to Florida, had about three or four hours with my father on his last day, kind of in and out of consciousness. He absolutely knew I was there. And then we thought he was going to pass fairly quickly. And when he didn't, it was around midnight. And I said to my brother, you know, I think I'm going to go to a hotel. It feels like dad might hold on for another day or two or three. I've got to get some sleep. Well, as luck would have it or poor luck would have it, I left. My father passed about an hour and a half later. And my brother mentioned that although his passing was um, not peaceful at the very, very end, Right before he passed, his eyes opened up very wide, and he looked up to the ceiling as if there was some bright light or something he was fixated on. And he looked very comforted and very happy and very in awe of something. My father was a moderately religious person, more than spiritual. Oh. And then he had a fairly, um, I think, intense physical situation and passed. The story you share about Stella was not so dissimilar to that. Is this something that you found somewhat regularly with, with patients that are passing, that they have some kind of experience like that at the very end of their death? Take that wherever you'd like to go. I don't think it was that common, but it, was, it happened certainly more than once. I, I, would, I mean, I don't like to put percentages on death, but in my experience in the eight years, probably 10 15% of people actually had that feeling of recognition or that look of recognition on their face. But it happened often enough for me to completely dissolve my own fear around death because Stella had been in a coma for a few days and she'd grown quite frustrated prior to that because she'd been a meditator and a yoga teacher and and she was like, you know, this is so frustrating. I just can't, I can't meditate and I can't die. And, um, and, and she was a very evolved soul on, on an earthly level. But anyway, she'd been, uh, she'd, she'd been in a coma for a couple of days and what often happens if you're dying slowly like that is your, the extremities, like your hands and your feet become uh, cold. The circulation doesn't, the organs aren't pumping enough to keep the circulation going. And so her hands and feet were really cold, which was a sign that she was getting very close to the end. And then just before she died, 
she came out of a coma. Her son was beside her, beside her holding one hand. Her husband was holding the other. I was actually holding one of her feet. Um, I just sort of felt that need to, to be touching her. We'd grown quite close in the weeks leading up to this. And uh, there was also her cat, Yogi, um, which was interesting. Cats almost always leave the room. Um, they don't want to be around. They, so Yogi was there right up until when she Stella went into a coma. And then Yogi was out on the veranda, wouldn't have a, a bar of it. And, uh, and so then Stella had been, been asleep in a coma and she just opened her eyes and looked up to sort of a corner point in the room where the wall and the roof join and, uh, and just opened her eyes and went, <gasps> and it was just the most incredible uninhibited joy, but it was also a look of recognition. And one of her friends had died a couple of weeks earlier and her family had decided not to tell her that. And, uh, and so I always wondered whether that was who she saw or whether it was family, you know, her parents or siblings or whatever. But there was absolutely no doubt in my mind or in, in her look that it was a look of recognition and she was overwhelmingly joyful to see whoever she was seeing. And then after that moment, her eyes just rolled back in her head and she sort of just went, uh, just like that, just for a few seconds. And then she closed her eyes and died. And, uh, and she was only one of my earliest patients, so I didn't quite know if she died. And as you mentioned, I wasn't actually trained as a nurse. I was a caregiver. And so it was a bit of a, a, bit of a stressful time because... Her, her husband and her son are saying, is she gone? Is she gone? And she looked on to me and I'm trying to feel her pulse, but my heart was just boom, boom, boom. And, uh, and then I just had a really calm feeling from her came over me and I just said, yes, yeah, she's gone. Ronnie, thank you. Although I was not present at the moment of my father's passing, there's remarkable similarities to how my brother recapped it to me. I don't think he told me the entire story because I think he felt like I was going to be upset by it. But it was I took great comfort um, in how you shared that story. Let's talk about Grace. Grace had a bit of a different story. Um, unlike uh, Stella, Grace had some very serious frustrations about a life not fulfilled. Her husband had been a quite domineering even negative force in their marriage and their family. He had been entered into a care facility shortly before that, and, 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 and now her getting ready to kind of live her crescendo of life, she all of a sudden realizes she has a terminal illness, quite a high and a low, rather closely together, and had enormous frustration about a life not lived and felt very angry and frustrated. We're going to get into this five regrets in just a moment. Share sure. what the insight was about Grace's life and what maybe all of us should take from it, whether we identify with the husband or we identify with Grace as the wife? Well, she'd lived the life um, expected of her. She'd come from a generation where you stayed in the marriage no matter what. And uh, she'd always wanted to travel Australia and her husband hadn't. And so when he'd gone into the care home, the first thing she did was went off to the travel agent. She was 86. And she went off to the travel agent to pick up brochures about... Um, bus tours around Australia and then she became ill and only left the house another couple of times for the doctors. And so she was she just had massive anguish and heartbreak around it and said, why didn't I, you know, why didn't I have the courage? Why did I do this? Why did I 
care about all of this. And it was all about the neighbours in the street and things like that, just how she would look to actually leave her husband. And I was trying to get going as a singer-songwriter then. And in tears one day, she just squeezed, squeezed my arm really tight and said to me, Bronnie, promise me, promise this dying woman that you will always live a life true to yourself, not the life others expect of you. And I promised her we were both in tears. And, and I said, of course, of course, Grace. And we, we were both, you know, crying about it. But what I didn't know in that moment, Scott, was I would hear not, you know, those exact words verbatim, but that theme repeatedly for the next eight years. And that actually became the most common regret from everyone I looked after who, who shared regrets with me was that they'd wish they'd lived a life true to themselves, not the life that others expected of them. Well, it's a lovely transition into what you call as the first regret of the dying. You rephrase it as you spoke it. I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Bronnie, some time ago, we had the privilege of interviewing a man named Stedman Graham. He's a 20-year friend of mine, very famous author here in America, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and most known as the long-life partner of Oprah Winfrey, 30 years together. And he, uh, Stedman has written extensively about the concept of identity, identity leadership. And Stedman's most profound gift he's given to me was this fact that most of us live our lives fulfilling the identity somebody else placed upon us. Typically our parents, sometimes mm -hmm. our relatives or caregivers or grandparents or even spouse, could have been a minister or preacher, imam or a rabbi. Most of us live our lives fulfilling up and living up to an identity somebody else chose for us. And Stedman writes, stop doing that, right? Create your own identity, create who you want to be and go pursue that. There's a lot of similarities there. What would you like our audience, our listeners and viewers, to take away from the first regret, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me? What I'd like to say is that doing that and letting go of those expectations or, or your past conditioning can be terrifying and can take a massive amount of inner work and courage but there is nothing that life can throw at you I believe that will be as painful as lying on your deathbed with the heartache the anguish and the regret of not having tried and so it's it's worth it because we have to sort of get broken to to find out who we are without that conditioned identity so it's it's not easy and it's not joyful to go through the process but the freedom that waits on the other side when you've realized okay I'm not willing to have regrets I'm not willing to live this life any longer whether those people actually put those expectations on you lovingly or through their own brokenness it's still uh, one of our, our big lessons in life to actually let go of that and, and shatter that old identity so that the core of who we are can actually step forward and, and take us forward. Bronnie, like you, I'm a parent. My wife, Stephanie, and I have three young boys, 8, 10, and 12. And I was raised in a very healthy, stable, very stable, like sometimes too stable family in the 80s and 90s in Central Florida. 
My father was, worked for a defense contractor. My mother was a stay-at-home mom, and they both were raised in very unstable families. My father's dad died when he was 10, and his twin brother caught polio in his teens and died. And my mother's parents were both alcoholics and died early in life, and she was basically on her own at kind of the age of 16. As a result, stability became everything for both of them as parents. That's a good thing. It also created a bit of a limiting paradigm on what they thought their son should do. Either you were a doctor, a lawyer, or a dentist, right? I mean, you had, it was, these are the jobs that are acceptable. My brother fell into that and became a chemical engineer, the most stable, high-paying job in America out of college. And then there's me. To this day, my mother cannot tell you how I earn a living. She has absolutely no idea how I cobble it all together and keep it going. And I think it wasn't until my late... 20s that I started to realize there are other pursuits in life than just what your parents approve on, approve for you. My brother very much was successful, but I have to think that Mike probably was more inclined to live the life my parents thought he should than I was. We're good friends to this day. We have nothing in common other than we look identical. He's super smart and I'm charismatic. We'll go with that. Any advice you would give the people listening to say, how do you know when you are in fact living the life that someone else expects of you and you should stop doing that and create the life you want for yourself? Any warning signs, any telltale signs, any similarities in your patients that said, I knew this then and I wish I would have stopped it? Well, a lot of people are dragging themselves through life instead of actually feeling joyful and grateful to be alive. I think that's a, a clear telltale sign. I also think it comes down to identifying what success is to you because that is changing and evolving, thank goodness, um, which gives us all a lot more freedom to to actually be ourselves and and to redefine uh, redefine what success is. But it, it still comes back to those people just feeling trapped and feeling like they didn't know themselves, that their family didn't know them and uh, and just, if anything, just feeling like, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, just, just feeling like they hadn't given life their best and their own life their best. And one of the things that came up regularly was the shock that it was over. And whether these people were in their 60s or 80s or 90s, almost all of them said, I cannot believe it's over now. It's over so soon. It's gone so fast. Their bodies might be 80 years old, but their spirit was still 30 or 40. And so the, the thing around regret is, is just judgment of themselves. And that's what was causing the pain because they realised they hadn't made the right choices. They hadn't made choices that honoured their own longings and it was too late. And that is a pretty powerful thing to witness because you wouldn't wish it even on your worst enemy. Ronnie, for the sake of time, let's move to number two. And this is one I think that resonates really strongly in America, right? I mean, Americans are known as being probably one of the most material-centric societies in our world. We have a nearly indefatigable work ethic, having been raised and modeled in a capitalistic society with a marketplace economy. I think probably the Japanese culture is most similar to American in terms of having a very much work-centered life. 
-hmm. you know, living to work versus working to live. I might argue, having been to your country several times, that the Australians, like the Italians and the French and many Europeans, know the value of life and where work shit sits in. The second regret people had, quite simply, was, I wish I hadn't worked so hard, which seems very aspirational. But I'll bet most Americans, in fact, many around the world, can relate to my dilemma, right? I'm 50 years old. I am the sole breadwinner for our family. My wife is a very competent, well-educated person. We've chosen, we've chosen to have her be the primary stay-at-home mom for our three sons. Therefore, we have to build, you know, school tuitions and college funds and braces and medical insurance and home insurance and car insurance and disability insurance and life insurance and, and tutoring and tennis lessons and basketball lessons and, and on and on and on and on and on and on and on. I mean, the Excel lines on our budget every month, there are 54 lines on our Excel budget, 54 lines. And some of them are tutoring, right? Some of them are braces. Some of them are, you know, you gotta get your hair cut. How does someone like me balance the fact that I don't want to live my life at the end of my life thinking I worked too hard, but I also don't want to live my life living on Social Security and not being able to take my family on a trip or afford medicine for my wife and myself? I mean, quite practically, it's a little naive. But I believe you when, I, when you say people regretted it. How do I make sure my life doesn't, at the end, come about I worked too hard? I think it's about asking yourself, are you working because you love it and you, uh, that the, your greatest joy is, is supporting your family like that or how much of it is fear-driven? So do you wouldn't certainly be alone, Scott, in having that list on your Excel spreadsheet. There's, there'd be plenty of families that have even longer lists. But do your children want every single thing there or would they prefer a little bit more of your time? And is... like. One of the things I really witnessed, the pain around this regret, was that the patient who first said it to me, sorry, I'm not sure if that's, it's just flashing a little bit here. I'm hoping it's okay for you. Um, his, his main problem was that his whole identity was wrapped up in his career and he hadn't allowed enough time to be a husband and be a family member. And even though he was doing all of that. He was supporting his family and his children and watching them grow up and became a grandfather. He admitted in the end that a lot of the reason that he stayed at work was wrapped up in his professional identity, that he didn't want to be seen um, as not as successful as, as he was. And so he, in, in our long conversations, he actually said to me, I should have spent more time with the family and did my kids need as much as I gave them? And so I try and approach that with my daughter. She, she would be out every afternoon at, you know, activities after school with piano and dance and netball and other things. And I've just said to her a few times, honey, you can have some things, but I'm not going to give you everything because that's going to come at a price for me that I'm not going to have enough energy to show up as the best mum that I want to. And even though you might get cross at me if you miss out on one or two things in the afternoon, you still actually have a very fortunate life. And I want to actually be here and spend time with you through that. And she will say to me later, she's, you know, I think those kids that are coming through now are so wise and so much more evolved than my generation, certainly. And, and she'll always say later, mum, I'm really glad 
that you stopped me from doing that because I it would have been too much or whatever. So I think we just need to really get clear about what success means to us and do our children need every single thing that we give them over giving them more of our time and a simpler lifestyle and it is a cultural thing especially I see that in America I've got friends in Japan as well that are working ridiculous amounts of hours and it is it is certainly a part of the culture but some of it is also driven by fear because we're we're scared of not having enough money of running out of the or changing the lifestyle that we've become accustomed to we're scared how it will look in society whether you know you want to admit it to yourself or not like most people have to do a lot of work to get to the point of not caring what other people think and I think that the best way to do that is actually face the fact that you're going to die and that your time is limited and once you truly truly look that in the face then you make your choices with a lot more courage and consciousness in a way that actually honors your heart on the deepest levels not just on the the um, instinct, if, so uh, on the instinctual sort of um, levels where you're the provider, but you also your kids will also benefit from more time with you. Yeah, Bronnie. Unlike other interviews, I will be going back, listening, and absorbing this one because as the interviewer, I can't always take it in as I like. Right, I'm thinking about the next questions and our time, but you sh- you shared several uh, profound insights in that answer. It makes me think about your discussion with Grace. You write in the book, as you're talking with Grace, the woman who was passing that was having major regrets over how she was so angry that she'd lived as a victim to her husband and had done things his way and not her way. And she felt very, she felt a balance of anger and regret. You and she had this conversation where you discussed that the only way to experience love is to accept people for who they are and have no expectations of them. While it may be much easier said than done, it was the most loving approach possible. I mean, this is a very, very sharp statement. The only way to experience love is to accept people for who they are and have no expectations of them. Riff on that for a moment. I think a lot of the expectations of them, again, come down to how we are going to look in the eyes of others because we're worried that our children will be mocked if they're a little bit different or will be seen as a bad parent or will be seen as careless if we don't stay in a career that we've worked in for 20 or 30 years. And so, again, that comes down to the opinions of others. And so if we could truly accept people, and it is easier said than done, but I certainly try it all the time with my daughter and I mess up all the time and own it and apologise and then give her that freedom to off, go off again as she, whoever she is. But if we allow each other to do that, we're also allowing ourselves to do that and there's incredible freedom to go through life without explanation to others, without the need to be understood, just knowing that what we're doing makes us happy, what we're doing is what our heart wants us to do so we understand it, Um, but we cannot always articulate it in a way that others can understand it. So, again, it's about using death as a tool for living and realising I'm on limited time here, 
I either get on with being who I am and I get on with allowing my loved ones and my friends and my children to be who they are, or at some point in life, I'm going to have to deal with my own forgiveness for not allowing that to unfold when I, when it was in my mind or when I had conscious around it earlier on in life. Beautifully said, the five regrets of the dying. Number one, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Number three, regret number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Talk about that. Uh, well, the, the best example is from the book is dear old Joseph, and he had been um, through concentration camps, and him and his wife had come, they were Hungarian Jews, and he had just come to Australia and worked and worked and worked and worked. And his regret wasn't around working too hard. It was the fact that his family didn't even know him and he didn't have, they didn't have the open communication channel for him to actually let them get to know him in the end. And so he was wishing that, that he had been more emotional and had been more vulnerable with, with his family. But there were also angles where, um, so there, there were two angles with that regret in, in that people wishing that they had allowed their, their deepest love to be expressed so their family knew how much they were loved and appreciated. But there were also regrets where, around that where people had said they wished that they'd expressed their feelings in their own defence and in their own as acts of kindness towards themselves by sticking up for themselves and actually speaking out against people who... Um, who were bringing them down and knocking them down all the time. So there's a couple of angles there. But either way, that regret was, was so painful for many people because it takes an amount, immense amount of courage to be that vulnerable because we can't control the reactions of others when we are that vulnerable. And so we can be that vulnerable and share all that, but then you might turn around with someone that says, mm, and just walks off and you've just been building up to this for like 10 years for this this expression they're like eh. or it's just too big for them to deal with and so they react with anger or or some sort of other rejection and that's a risk that we have to take and find peace in ourselves to know that okay we cannot control the reactions of others just as others are not responsible for our own reactions but if we know that we've at least given it a go, we can find peace in ourselves that we've been brave enough to be vulnerable and express ourselves. You, you hit it on the head. It takes uh, enormous vulnerability and courage and self-confidence and risk to be um, able to express our feelings when they may not be returned, when they may not be validated, when they may be disputed, right, or, to, to, you know, to mimic you, huh? whatever, right? I didn't think of it the same way. Uh, it's really about having courage, isn't it? Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Number four, the fourth regret of the dying, I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. That's a little bit different now because we have social media and the generation, most of the people I was looking after were from a generation prior to the internet. And so if we're really reminiscing about a friend these days, we can look them up on social media and reach out. But it's still not the same 
as actually making the effort and seeing them in real life. And so that regret for, for my patients was because they had completely lost touch with their friends. And in the end, often what happens, especially if people have time to die, like if they, if they know they're dying and they have time to reminisce and actually prepare for their death and heal their relationships or whatever they want to do um, emotionally, they can't do much physically by that point, but emotionally, what a lot of people have realised is that their friends represent a part of their life prior to them becoming a parent. And so they want to revisit those memories. And the dying people want to live for as long as they possibly can. So what also often happens is the adult children of a dying person are often already in a state of grief before their parent dies. And so the parent is a parent until the end. So they are worrying about their adult children and just wanting to know that they're okay and they're going to be okay with, with the, this person's death. But friends will come in and they may have grief as well, but the dying person doesn't feel as responsible for their grief as they do for their family's grief. So it allows a dying person to have lighter interactions and, um, and even a lot more laughter towards the end than what they can find with family because they can feel the pain the family's already in and feel responsible for that. Whereas with friends, they may feel a certain element of responsibility, but it's, it's, coming, it's a relationship that's much more on equal terms rather than on nurturing and parenting terms. Bronnie, so many gifts you gave to your readers and to me in this book. I think my biggest gift was you reminded me the power of assuming good intent in others. I believe it was the story with Stella. She had several adult children. Uh, the daughter, I think, was perhaps the most attentive and was there frequently, if not almost every day. And you had great respect for her and you struck up a good friendship with her. And then at the very end, right as her mom was passing, I believe I have the story right, she left. And I think you shared how confused and even frustrated you were about that. And then you kind of came to a different understanding. Share that story because it may give um, lease, license, liberty to some people to deal with death how they need to. But I think the real learning is how you initially viewed it and then where, where and how you came to better understand the daughter's decision. Oh, oh. So a lot of times uh, the dying person doesn't actually want their children there. And, uh, and so when um, the daughter had left, the adult daughter had left, I was only new into this, this field. So I hadn't watched many family dynamics around death at the time. And so I was thinking, how on earth can she leave? If my mum was dying, I'd be there right beside her. And how can she do that? How, how can she actually do that? But I came to understand later, because I ended up having an ongoing relationship with her, with the daughter, was that she knew her mother well enough that she actually left for her mother, not for herself, because her mother didn't want her there. And that was often the case. There, there were a couple of common things that happened around dying. Most people wanted a window or door open, which I, I don't know if I even spoke about that in the book. You but did. Most you of wrote them, about it. Yes. You did. Yeah. And, um, and the other thing is that not all of them wanted their, their adult children there or their relatives there because they just wanted to be able to leave in peace and not be worried about the child's reaction and also not be, and child, I say as an adult child, 
old grandchildren, but they also didn't want that to be the last memory of the dying person. They wanted them to remember their last conversation or some other memories during those last couple of months. And so it didn't always, it, it wasn't always how it looked, yeah. In, in many ways, Bronnie, your book is also a book on how to die. It's, I've learned a lot about kind of, uh, okay, so I don't want to do that, but I might want to do that, and this seems comforting. So in many ways, you know, and I'm not facing my mortality, hopefully, who knows? I'm like a magnet for death right now, I feel like, in my world. I mean that respectfully, not disrespectfully. Yes, yes. But I'm, I bet it's, it's helped me think about how I would like to live the rest of my life, but also how I would like to manage my dying experience if I'm so privileged to do so. In many ways, the book also made me realize what a gift it is to know that you are dying, as opposed oh. to dying in some tragic accident where you have no chance to unwind or think or contemplate. The book is a masterpiece. You mentioned earlier, before we finish with number five, that animals often leave the rooms. I think you said cats. Tell us, I know that's a little bit lighthearted and not as important. Talk about what you learned from your experience with animals. Um, the dogs were often still around almost to the end and um, you could sort of feel their grief a lot and, and cats are just so much more impersonal and, you know, cats cats have cat attitude and they're independent. And, yeah, it just became a, a, a repeated thing to witness and <clears throat> I actually, excuse me, I actually came to warn some of my cat owner patients and said, don't take offence once your cat starts leaving the room and uh, because that that can happen and and it did cats just didn't didn't want to be around death whatsoever but having said that which is well, what, sorry as, but one more reason not to have a cat right dog guy right here but <laughs> please keep going i have two dogs um two one dogs. story that's that's not in the book is that my sister had a, a cat and a dog and she's she's like dr doolittle she's got loads and when her dog died the cat who was a cat with attitude and independent. The cat went and sat on the dog's grave for three days and didn't move. So, you know, it's given me a new respect for cats. No, that there. cat was just claiming triumph over the home. That cat wasn't depressed, whatever. Okay, <laughs> regret, some levity and a heavy topic. Uh, regret number five, I wish I had let myself be happier. Oh, it's people realizing that happiness is a choice and it's not about denying the sad times and the hard times, it was them realising that they still had a choice in how long they stayed in that. And so if they were going through a hard time, they could still focus on a bird singing or they could still focus on something to be grateful for. And in those moments where mindfulness was brought to it, they it brought them, it was a choice towards happiness. And so, like I say, Scott, it's not denying the hard times because the dark and the light is a part of life. It's how we get to know ourselves. It's how we grow. And it's certainly how we get to know our strengths. But it's, it's a choice in that when we're given those hard lessons, we can either stay in that victim mode and feel sorry for ourselves forever or we can see that those things are quite likely happening for us, not to us, and then realize, okay, I'm not going to focus on the worst of this. I'm going to focus on what I can get from this and what I can learn from this. And so it's, it's just about choosing in each moment to be as mindful as possible and to see if there's something, even just one thought, 
that can pull you a little bit more towards happiness or out of the darkness. And every time you do that, it becomes a habit. It's like a muscle and you develop it and it becomes more more easy it becomes easier to be more mindful and so happiness is the choice in the sense that we can actually steer our thoughts where we want and not deny those hard times but also not let them hold us down forever to actually try and find the gifts in them instead Bronnie, I was delighted to see that my friend and guest on this podcast, Marie Forleo, endorsed your book, at least on the American copy. But I was especially delighted to read the endorsement from The Guardian. They said, where rights of the phenomenal clarity of vision that people gain at the end of their lives and how we might learn from their wisdom. That is the exact value I've taken away from your book. Let's end with talking about something a little more lighthearted and exciting. The movie. Tell us about what's going on with the movie. Uh, it's been a long process. Um, it's a bit tricky to to put a, a movie together that has so many dying people and stay true to the message because the message is really what's important. And so it's taken quite a long time for the writers to get the script to a point where the message isn't lost. And uh, But it's in a, a fabulous place now. It's been fictionalised somewhat to make it work for film, sure. uh, but that's that's what has to happen. But it still has five of the patients in there and uh, and it's up to the point of casting and I don't know who's going to play who yet and the producers have told me that they'll just let me know when it's all in place because really it's their project and they know I have to live with it and that I have to like it because then I'll be able to promote it well for them. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a bit of a funny journey. Um, it's a bit surreal, I guess, to yeah, have sure. a, a movie made about a part of your life. But it's also an honour because the messages in the book are, are very important and so it means it will reach an audience that may not be inclined to read the book or listen to the audio book. They, they'll benefit from the, the film instead. So... Yeah, there's going to be a lot of great music in it, uh, which makes me so happy. And, uh, yeah, it's it's coming along so well. And the, the team working on it are bringing incredible integrity to the message. And so I'll be able to support it completely because it's going to be a beautiful and powerful film. So, well, I heard there was a big debate whether it was going to be Cindy Crawford or Nicole Kidman playing you. So that's what's been part of the process is figuring out which glamorous superstar is going to be you. Well, that's right. I mean, they're just trying to find a twin for me, aren't they? Yeah, so I when know, they I know. It's okay, like that, it's okay. They so. will attempt to do you justice. <laughs> is it an American-produced uh, film or an Australian-produced film? It's a German and um, Australian-produced film. Mm. Bonnie Ware, author of the book, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, A Life Transformed by the Dearly Departing. Thank you for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Scott. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.